and welcome to G220 Radio. My name is Mike, and Ricky isn't able to be with us, but that's okay. We are continuing our show for today, and we're going to be talking about the church, and we're going to be looking at kind of the last four paragraphs of the 1689 on the church. I'm going to be working through them, walking through them, talking about them, and just trying to seek to better understand what it means to be part of the church. And since this is the third part, maybe we should go ahead and start off by doing a review as we've kind of looked over now 11 paragraphs we might have forgotten some things. I probably have forgotten some things. So just to recap, we started several episodes ago in the first episode talking about kind of what is the church. And the Baptist Catechism splits up the church into kind of two categories. Here, I got mine, my paper copy in front of me. Paragraph one starts off with the Catholic or universal church. And we've talked a show about it. We did a show on the use of Catholic in the Nicene Creed. So when we say Catholic, we're not talking about the Roman Catholic Church or the church from the that is ruled by the Bishop of Rome. We're talking about the universal church, the church that is all times and over all the earth. This would include our brothers and sisters being persecuted in China or in Africa. This would include the early church and the Old Testament saints. When we talk about the Catholic or universal church, we're talking about those who have the eternal work of the Spirit and truth of grace. We would also maybe use the term invisible church, the same meaning. But there's also, while this invisible church, we also have a physical church, a church made up of people that come together to worship. And we understand this church to be those who are believing or confessing the gospel. They have put their trust in Christ and so they present themselves to a church. And with that, we kind of understand and look at what does it mean to be a church? What sets it apart? <clears throat> we the the catechism acknowledges in paragraph 4. I'm sorry. Paragraph three, that the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error. There's no one true church that meets at a particular occasion. All churches, while holding to the gospel, are not perfect. And that we see that the Lord is over the head of the church. Now, this is polemics against the Roman Catholic Church which would say the vicar of Christ, that is the bishop of Rome, is over head of the church as Baptist and 
Protestants in general, we believe that the church has one head and his name is Jesus Christ and he now dwells in heaven. And that he has called us and given us what we are to do and that is to minister the word and to do the sacraments. And we're to do it according to how he has commanded us. We've already mentioned this earlier when we talked about the Lord's Day and the Sabbath, but that we've set a day to come to meet together. And that these that there are these members of the church that, as it would say in paragraph six, are saints by calling, visibly manifesting, and evidencing their obedience upon the call of Christ. So we have a group of people that are gathering together. They are calling themselves Christians. They are living as Christians. As far as we can see, their works are in keeping of the gospel. And so they come together and they gather. They're to walk together. But they are to also do things. There is this order of worship. I mean, we saw that as an explaining of the preaching of the word, the hearing of the word, the right administration of sacraments or ordinances, prayer. We also saw the roles of deacons and elders and how God has lip, has given us men by the laying of hands and by internal the external and internal call that people are to serve the church. Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3 gives us those requirements of who is eligible to be a bishop, pastor, elder, and the Baptist theology. They're all the same office used to describe kind of the different aspects of pastoral ministry, but also deacons. And elders are called to preach the word, to be available to be encouragement to the people and the deacons are set aside to serve, to minister. And we saw all of that coming in <clears throat> and we ended that the Baptists recognized that some people are gifted to in preaching and teaching but they may not be pastors. And this is commonly called the gifted brother. And we see the Baptists affirm that there are people who are not pastors or deacons, but they are still allowed to teach. There is a, a position for them. And that's what we've kind of covered over the last two episodes. We have looked at how this plays out, seeing the scriptures as they are. And now we're going to try. My goal is to finish this thing. We're going to do it. It's going to be fun. So <clears throat> we're going to be starting in chapter two or chapter 12. And what we'll see here is kind of this moving away, kind of to preface this as to come along, is that 
we are going to see this movement of individual churches and kind of the roles of believers there, but moving also to a community of churches, an association of churches. So here is paragraph 12 of the chapter on the church as we look at and to consider what they have. The the ones who came before us this wrote, as all believers are bound to join themselves to particular churches when and where they have opportunity so to do, so all that they are admitted unto the privilege of the church are also under the censors and government thereof according to the rule of Christ. So we see here this continuation. We've talked about the leaders. We've talked about kind of in general the people of the church. They're Christians, and out of these people we call all leaders. What paragraph 12 does here is really emphasizes church membership. So to be confessional in 1689 is to affirm church membership. What do they mean? Well, they use this idea of they bound to join themselves to a particular church. That is, you find a church that you go to, you attend, you become a member of. We... In, in American culture, obviously the authors of the 1689 don't have this immune. We have kind of created and thought of church as more of a social club. I join it. I don't always have to go. don't have to be really involved. I can kind of come in, get what I need, and leave. And what we see here is that there is this, there's more to it. So they're too bound to join themselves. We've already read about how a little bit of how the community is to help each other grow in kind of holiness, that we need each other's and through this life. We can think of Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider how to spur one another into good... Um, in love and good works. And this idea of coming and helping each other grow. So the confession here is acknowledging that these commands that we are to do to one another, to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another, this idea that we as believers come together to strengthen one another, they are acknowledging you do that in a local church. You bind yourself to a local church. In our day of age, this um, is kind of countercultural in the grander evangelical world. You think of churches that have kind of live streams and they're on the TV and people watch them. And they will say, well, we went to church. There is 
something about it that doesn't help. If I watch church on my TV with my family, how am I encouraging other Christians? Okay, maybe I can encourage my wife. My kids aren't Christians. They don't believe. We can train them up in the fear and admiration of the Lord and encourage them to walk in obedience and to seek the Lord. But how am I to encourage this dad who's having a hard time at work to remain faithful? Or a single mother who's trying to work and raise kids? How am I to encourage her to seek Christ and to find her peace there? Or to encourage my pastor to maintain his faithfulness in the word? All of these things done when we come together. So the idea to bind ourselves to a particular church is to bring ourselves within the community. And obviously there is things to consider when we look at, again, what it means. So we're to bind ourselves to a particular church when and where they have the opportunity to do so. This, we've had a show dedicated to this. How far is too far of a church? Here in the Baptist Confession, we see that we need to be attending a church when we can. When we have the opportunity to do it, we should bind ourselves to a particular church. Now, there's questions on whether there's no churches good in my area, um, and all these other things. And these are things that we need to think about and consider. Like I said, we've already done a podcast on this. So check our archives for that. Um, the show title is How Far is Too Far to Go Church? And we have it. We travel about 30 minutes to go to church. Some people travel farther. But it's still the aspect of attending a particular church when and where we have the opportunity to do it. So what does it mean when the Baptist Catechism, okay, we get it, we need to find a particular church, and we need to attend when we can, when we're able. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be then joined? Well, they explained it. That those are admitted into the privileges of a church. Now, as a Baptist, one of there are different views on what some of these privileges are, but as a Congregationalist, as a member, you get to vote. You have say in a church business, you can ask questions. And this is important for a Congregationalist polity. The elders may bring motions at times that require church votes. Being a member allows you to have these privileges. In my church, to serve in ministries, you have to be a member of the church. To be in nursery, you have to be a member. To teach um, Sunday schools, um, unless it's a special occasion, 
to teach youth, you have to be a member. There are these are privileges, and those who are not members can't do it. And we have others too. So there are certain privileges that you get when you're members of a church. And they're also under the censor and government thereof. So not only are there benefits of being part of a local church that you get to partake of, and I've named a few, and there are other benefits also, but you're also subject to discipline. You're subject to the rule of your elders. Um, people may not like it or not, but when we consider the whole masks and whether churches should or should not wear masks or the te- should a pastor stand up to the government, and those questions are need to be asked by the local church, and we're not going to get into it. We've talked a little bit about it in past episodes. But as a member, even if I don't like what my pastor says, saying, you know, we're going to wear masks, we're going to sit six feet apart in kind of our family units, and that's how we're going to worship. I may disagree with him, but I'm still under his authority. Now there's questions of whether or not he's acting rightly in his authority, and those are there's a lot of issues that come with that. But there is a sense in which when the pastor s- says something, you are under his authority. When the elders say, make rules on how they would like to see the church, this local church, be faithful to the gospel ministry and faithful to the word of God, we're to listen to them. We're to respect their authority. I mean, even Timothy talks, or Paul talks to Timothy about how if you have a charge against an elder, you need two to three witnesses. It just can't be, you just can't flippantly bring a charge to an elder about something you don't like. So being a member of church also puts you under their authority, including kind of censor or what we would call church discipline. That if you do not, you have some sin that has been publicly made known and you refuse to repent, called to be disciplined. And a believer is tying themselves to this church for it. And it's when we consider church discipline, it's for their good. They're, it's for them to see this kind of judgment on earth that they've been excommunicated from the church, that they see their heirs, they repent of their sins, and we bring them back into a fellowship. That's the goal of church discipline. Paul talks about letting this the sinner who does what's even ungodly for the Gentiles to do at the time to kick him out and let Satan sift him. The goal of church discipline is not just to kick people out, but to bring them to repentance and faith in Christ. So that's what this is, according to the rule of Christ. So this is not just something I'm making up. This is not just something they're making up. But that this is what we find in Scripture. That we come together as a local church. We come, that being part of a local church has benefits. 
There are, you also put yourself under the authority of the elders. And that in doing so, you are doing according to what Christ has told us to do. And we're to <clears throat> then follow and obey with it. And then in verse, in paragraph 13, we'll see here that um, a continuation of what it is to be a church member. So paragraph 13 says, no church member upon any offense taken by them, having performed their duty required of them towards the person they are offended at, ought to ought to disturb any church order or absent themselves from the assembly of church or the administration of any ordinances upon the account of such offense at their fellow member, but wait upon Christ and further proceedings of the church. So we get now into a little bit of that aspect of church discipline. So what should we, what is this saying? Kind of basically, to sum it up, is no church member, having performed their duty required them towards the person they are offended at, ought to di- ought to disturb any church order or be absent themselves from an assembly or administrating of the ordinances upon the account of such a f- about it. So basically if you have offended someone or so someone is offended you've sinned against someone what this is saying is that or someone's offended you is that you shouldn't disturb the church. You shouldn't remove yourself from the assembly of the church. Um, you shouldn't administer the ordinances. But to wait upon Christ and the further proceedings of the church. Basically, is don't remove yourself from the church and, and don't kind of serve until the matter is solved going through the proper order of church discipline now we know this in Matthew 18 where Jesus tells us what to do if a brother's offended us we're to go to them privately seek to try to win them over if that doesn't work you get a two or three to kind of be witnesses and to investigate what is going on, to have a better understanding of what the issue is from both parties. If they determined that, yes, this person's heir, he needs to repent, and he chooses not to repent, now it comes before the church 
and the people vote on him. And when they vote, they have Christ is with them and their vote as they loose and bind who's in the church. And if they don't repent, they are kicked out as Gentiles. What the Baptist catechism is saying is that you cannot, as someone who's been offended, you cannot be disturbing the worship. You can't be doing things that would bring kind of discord to a service and that you need to wait, wait for the process to go, wait for the church to make the ruling for it. And <coughs> this is kind of a way to keep you accountable, to keep you in the local church. And I think we we need to hear this. This is difficult. You just can't leave a church because you don't like it or because someone did something you don't like because they want to change the carpet from red to blue. It doesn't matter, does it? This is kind of what we have here. We are to remain in the church and wait upon the Lord. And in further proceeding of the church, let the church officers do what they need to do to render the proper judgment. And don't forsake the people. Don't cause a disturbance. You're too called to still love your brother. Yes, he may have sinned against you, and it may have hurt a lot. But you're still called to love them. You're called to forgive them. And the the catechism here is saying, don't forsake the people. Don't forsake your church because someone has sinned against you. We're all sinners saved by the blood of Christ. None of us are perfect. Only the perfect man can tame the tongue, and we all know our tongues. We use our tongues repeatedly to bless God and curse people. That's what James says. Throw it out. That's what James says. We do it. And so when we consider how we go about in church discipline, is that kind of this, we remain faithful to the end. And maybe there's a time in which the faithful decision is to go to a different church. That something has so shaped that you can't worship. That you have that option. But I think there is a point in which you go and you wait on the Lord and for the proceeding of the church and you remain faithful in what you have called to do. And with that, move to here, paragraph 14. And paragraph 14 states, as each church and all of its members of it are bound to pray continually for the good and prosperity of all the churches of Christ in all places and upon all occasions to further 
one another within the bounds of their place and places and callings and exercise of their gifts and graces so that churches, when planted by the providence of God, so as they are to enjoy opportunity and advantage for it, ought to hold communion among themselves for their peace, increase of love, and mutual edification. There's a lot here. A lot to unpack. So it starts off, as each church and all of its members, so we see the combination of them both. Each church, each member, are bound to continually play for the good and prosperity of all churches of Christ in their places and upon all occasions to the further of one another is within their bounds of their place and callings. So what does this mean? This means we need to pray for other churches. We need to pray for other gospel-preaching churches. And they say here, all the churches of Christ. I think there's a recognition here of the fact that while we disagree with our Presbyterians on some very important doctrines like baptism, we are to continue to pray for them and their prosperity as Church of God. And that God would use them and influence them in their places and callings. And an example I have of this is um, Mark Dever's church, Capitol Hill, the church in which Mark Dever is elder of at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. I went to one of their prayer meetings, and... There, they pray for other churches in Washington, D.C. They prayed for their pastor, that their pastor would remain strong and continue to preach the gospel. Prayed for their congregation and their witness to the people. How often do we do this in our churches? I mean, I think about my own church, and maybe this is something we need to be more aware of, of other churches in our communities, other churches we know across the world. In a missions class, my professor, who's a, who was a missionary um, with the International Mission Board, the, Interna the International Mission Agency of the Southern Baptist Convention, and he told us like that with missionaries that we know and we know where they're serving is to look up the news, look up what's going around in their area and use that as a way to pray for them uh, as to have, you may even know what their ministry is going on. And if they have newsletters, maybe they have it, but this gives you a way to pray. It gives you something specific to pray for and how this church will handle this conflict or this world, this war, or this disaster and their witness of it. So the Baptist Catechism calls us to pray for other gospel-preaching churches. And that, upon all occasions, to further ones, 
within the bounds of their place in the callings and the exercises of their gifts and graces. <coughs> so the churches, when planted by the providence God, as they may enjoy opportunity and advantage for it, ought to hold communion among themselves for their peace and increase of love and mutual edification. So this second part is, so not only do we pray for churches and maybe churches in our local area, here we see this idea of enjoying opportunities to have fellowship with one another for their peace, for the increase of love, and for mutual edification. So that we would, as a church, be of one accord, not just locally in our church, but also with those around us. The church is close to us. That we can come together to be of one mind, to be of one accord, to mutually edify each other with it. We kind of in the Southern Baptist, which is the context in which I know of, and I think other Reformed Baptists tend have this too, you have this idea of associations. Here in Louisville, we have the Louisville Regional Baptist Association which kind of helps with churches. It's kind of a <clears throat> a um, opportunity for someone to serve and to connect churches with one another and to help further the mission here in Louisville with different churches. Um, that is an association that my church is associated with. <clears throat> and so we pay and we have the opportunities and we've used some of their services at time services at times but this is kind of even more than that these are churches coming together for the growth and expansion to to acknowledge that we're not a lone island my church in southwest louisville is not a lone island with all these kind of impending dooms on the outside ready to attack attack us. But that there are many of these outposts, even close by, in which we can find encouragement to continue to pursue what is good and what is great. And I think this is... Importance. And this is why we did a show on the Southern Baptist Convention, I think is um, important. And we'll see this in just in chapter 15 here in just a little bit. That these coming together helps us. And we know to kind of think about this as Paul routine regularly calls his readers to pay to pray for other churches, usually the church that he's at. And he will have those close together. You have um, members, if I remember right, in Acts, members of the Thessalonica church coming and having fellowship with the Berean church, if I remember right. And you have these types of fellowships among others. I think this is what they're getting at, that we're not isolated churches, but that we 
need to come together for mutual edification with him. And I think this plays off more and probably more here in a little bit when we consider paragraph 15. We see kind of how this kind of now plays out. So it says here in 15, in case of difficulties or differences, either in a point of doctrine or administration, wherein either churches in general are concerned, or any one church in their peace, union, and edification, or any member or members of any church are injured, or by any proceedings of censors not agreeable to truth or order, it is accordingly to the mind of Christ that many churches holding communion together do by their messengers meet and consider and give their advice in or about these matters in difference to be reported to all the churches concerned. Okay. This kind of relates to a couple of paragraphs ago when we looked at um, chapter 13 and the idea of waiting on the proceedings. <coughs> what, what is it saying here? Essentially, let's just use the Southern Baptist Convention as the example. That is, churches, 14,000 14, of, 14, of them, though not all send, come together to, in their peace and unification, go about on how to cooperate together for the further of the gospel. And what this is kind of saying is that if, let's say you, you've waited, you remained faithful to the church and the investigation and kind of the verdict did not go the way you planned, not the way you thought. You still thought you were, in some sense, an injustice was made. Or you just have points of conflict with doctrine, Calvin and Arminian, Calvinism and Arminianism, or form doctrines of grace versus the doctrines of Jacob Arminius. That churches can come together to discuss these things. I mean, Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, they came together to discuss what to do with <coughs> Arius's teachings <coughs> and how to deal with the issue. This so this is nothing new to Baptists, and this is coming in that that churches holding community together, that those are of like mindedness, so Baptists with Baptists, Presbyterians with Presbyterians, visitors Baptists, but that churches, let's go Calvinistic Baptist. Reformed Baptist churches would meet together and Arminian or free will Baptist churches would meet together and that they would take these matters and the messengers and meet and consider and give an advice and to weigh in on these matters. So there's kind of a, another tier to try to think clearly about the situation.
and that they can come together according to the mind of Christ. So having that one mind and to consider the issue. And now what you don't see here is them rendering a decision. It was done at the local church. But this would allow, I think, kind of additional counselors to think about these issues more clearly, to consider different aspects. Maybe other ministers have had to deal with something similar and are able to kind of weigh in on some of their thoughts of when they had to deal with a similar situation. This is what is happening. They're coming together. They're trying to maintain unity in it. And so you have these messengers and they come and they consider. Now, the rest of this chapter deals with what does it mean about these ministers? And so to finish it off, it says, well, how bad these ministers assembled are not entrusted with any church power properly so-called or with jurisdictions over churches themselves to exercise any censors, whether over any churches or person, or to impose their determination on the churches or officers. So here we see it more clearly. These messengers come together. They discuss these things. They iron out these ideas. But the messengers assembled do not have authority over the local church. They don't have authority to exercise discipline in the church. They do not have the right to not. They don't have the right to discipline people in the church. They don't have a right to discipline a church for what they didn't please. Or to impose their values on the church. They can't tell a church what to believe or what not to believe. This is the kind of the beauty of the Southern Baptist Convention. This is where we see it. The messengers come together to church to vote on how our money, those who give to the cooperative program, is spent among the different entities of the Southern Baptist Convention. And to vote on matters on what we want the um, convention to stand for and to affirm and according to what we believe chiefly in the Baptist faith, the message. But these items, like back in 2019 and um, the article about critical race theory, that is not binding on the churches. That decisions made in at the convention, at in wherever the convention is held at for the Southern Baptists, do not have binding over the church. Now, the Southern Baptist Convention can choose to disfellowship a church, but that's all they can really do. They can say, We'll just no longer accept your money. And you don't have the opportunity to bring messengers and to vote on these things. So they can do that, but they can't just because they disenfellowship 
with a church doesn't necessarily say that church is not biblical or not. They just don't fall in line with what the Southern Baptist Convention says you have to fall in line with. Now, those rules are pretty, I would say, would it be indication of a true church and not true church, especially when you think of affirming um, hetero, hetero, um, homosexual or <clears throat> other sexual sins that are very prevalent and pushed in our society or women pastors here, we affirm that here at G220 Radio, we do affirm that those are not churches that would be Christian churches. Obviously, there's disagreements on that. We have other shows you can listen to about it. But I think this is the important fact that churches can come together. They can iron out these doctrinal differences. They can think about maybe someone who's been um, unjustly disciplined or then didn't receive the justice from maybe the, the offender that they have kind of this other group to stop and to think about it. And, but that they can't render a judgment. So in the end, you know, the person may not have to repent or a person may not be removed from church and it'll still be that way. <clears throat> but associations help in this and how the 1689 talks about it helps churches to not be so isolated and fall off the path, that we need to come together for mutual edification and growth and to have one mind to continue. So taking what Paul is saying to the Philippians and saying it just, it's not only does it apply to the local church, but this also applies to churches around us. We should be seeking the same mind. When we think of conferences like Together for the Gospel, and whatever you may think about it, we're not going to discuss it, but that idea, we're coming together for the gospel. We're coming together to hear and to be refreshed and to proclaim the glories of Christ coming down to save sinners like ourselves. We should be together for the gospel, that we can be Baptists or Presbyterians or Methodists who, Methodists or Anglicans, those who believe in the true gospel, can come together and be one. But obviously, there's certain points. You know, getting a Baptist and Presbyterians together is going to throw some you know, some wrenches in the pot. And, and maybe not true, but when you have like-minded churches coming together to help edify, even pastors from similar traditions, whether you think Reformed Baptists are part of the Reformed tradition or not, having Reformed Baptists and Presbyterians coming together and to think about these things and to consider these things, these are good things. And that we should be part of it. So here, got about 10 minutes left in the show. And to just consider now, 
kind of all of what we've covered in here, chapter 26 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith on the church. And when I step back and I think about kind of what they're saying is God has given us a community to grow, to flourish. Um, my pastor, quoting another pastor, is there's a sense in which the local church is like a mini taste of heaven. It's not perfect. It's like the tabernacle. It, it, it doesn't have, it's just a shadow. It's the longing. <clears throat> but how beautiful is it to attend a church that is unified, that aren't bickering about things, that have come together for the worship of our Savior by the Spirit. There's something there that no other social club can touch. Community is powerful. And because we're not called to be individual people. We are called to live in community. And I mean, I'm, <clears throat> I'm time of truth here. I'm not always one that wants to be part of a community. There are times that I just want to pull away and not be part of it. It's a struggle that at times I just give in. But maybe what I need to consider and what we should consider about this is that God has given us a group of people to help us. What's stronger, a single cord or a cord bonded two or three times? I think when we consider that proverb, we should consider it in light that God has given us the local church to help us, to strengthen us in our times of weakness, to help us to keep our focus on the head of the church, who is Christ. Are these people perfect? No. There's no perfect church. But God has given us a particular people that meet at a particular place so that we can grow and, in one sense, be to not confirm to the world, but to grow in holiness. to hear God speak to us week in and week out, to have a pastor who sits there diligently and studies, thinking about the church, what he knows of different situations within the church, and how can this stir up their emotions to serve the living king. These are the important aspects of why there are 15 paragraphs on the church. It's that important. It's God's institution to us. It is what God uses to grow us. I've mentioned it last week in the with the Baptist Catechism that the word is made effectual by the Spirit, but not just in reading, but 
more so in the preaching of the word. Martin Lloyd-Jones once mentioned that most canceling issues can be solved by regular attendance to church. Not all, but most. And to come and to consider what the pastor is saying and how that applies to my life. How does the principles given in the sermon apply to my life and my growth in holiness? These are the types of things that God has given to us to use. So when we shun the church, when we pull away from the church, when we sit at home and watch the church on TV, we remove ourselves from the help God has given to us. We have removed ourselves from the lifeline. And these are important. And here at G220, we love the local church. That's why we did an episode about how far should one travel to go to church. When should one maybe consider planning a church nearby so they don't have to travel so far? These are real questions that people must answer when we dedicate ourselves to be part of a local church, to submit ourselves to godly elders who are seeking not their own fame, but the advancement of the gospel in the community by equipping their believers with the knowledge of God and the fire of evangelism to go and to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. What made Babylon so powerful in the era of the Old Testament and ancient Near East was the supply lines they developed. They could get things, they could move supplies quickly. They could move armies quickly. And that's what God is doing with the church. But he does it better because the head of the church is at his right side, interceding for us. And because he's a person now and dwelling in a physical body, he can't be everywhere in his humanity. So he sent the Spirit so that all churches around the world have the Spirit of God in them. It's now just not in a holy place separated, which only one person to go inside one time a year, but that there are now buildings full of people that have the presence of God in them. They have the down payment of our salvation, the spirits. The church is the continuation to the move back to the Garden of Eden to the new heavens and the new earth where we can dwell with God. Adam was separated from God, separated from the presence. 
Israelites now have the presence, but they can't just go to the presence. There's all these ritual cleanings. And even to go into the most holy place, only one person goes in one day a year. But now we have a high priest who's not in the temple made by human hands, but a spiritual temple who sits on the right hand of God the Father and intercedes for us. And that the Father and the Son both sent the Spirit on earth to dwell within the believer, to give the believer the power to become holy. And he does that when we gather together and we meet together to worship this triune God, to have genuine fellowship with him as symbolized by the Lord's Supper. That's something that we proclaim to the end. This is why the church is so important. This is why we've had to take three episodes to think through all these issues. Because essentially, this is what God has given to us. This is what God is going to use to bring a people, a holy people to himself. So we shouldn't neglect the local church. Yes, the church is more than just a building on a street. It's the people inside of it. But we can meet together in a building. We can meet together in the woods if we need to. We can meet with each other in the basements being quiet because the Spirit dwells in all of us. And you can't be alone, Christian. You will never grow being alone. But when you have a community, you can be encouraged, you can be strengthened, and you can continue to grow. So there it is. We finished it. Chapter 26 on the church, all 15. The final part three um, with it. Join us next week, 9 p.m. Eastern on YouTube and on Facebook. Of course, you can always catch us later when we go on Podbean, where we upload the audio version of all of our podcasts. Go there. Go to our website, g220ministries.com. There are links there if you feel led by the Spirit to help us to pay for the expenses of having websites and using tools like we have to bring this content to you. We appreciate everything that you go and pick up some new swag. In fact, I was thinking, like, Ricky's been designing a lot of t-shirts and they're really cool. You should get one. But I was thinking about doing like a, and the Baptist Catechism says blank t-shirt. You know, that's just something I feel like I say a lot. It may be funny to have a shirt that says that. Or the, and, well, you know, who knows? But join us next week for another episode of G220 Radio. 
My name is Mike, and this has been episode number 503 on the church, part three. Everyone, God bless.